Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And this was a wonderful conversation with Aril Svetten, who was coaching uh, Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden at the time. Um, it was recorded way back in April 26 of 2021. And it was just a really wonderful conversation to see the incredible insights of what they do in Norway. Um, and this was recorded before... Christian Blumenfeld had won the Olympic Games and before Gustav Eden had won the Kona Ironman World Championships. So it's a fascinating insight just to see what they've achieved since, but also what they'd done leading up to this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right. Today's guest is one of the most successful endurance coaches on the planet. He's the Triathlon Norway head coach and the sports director of the Norwegian Triathlon Federation. I've had several of his athletes on the show, including in episode 14 with Christian Blumenfeld, the 2019 World Triathlon Series Grand Final Champion, and in episode 52 with Gustav Eden, the 2019 70.3 World Champion, and then he backed it up in 2020 with the Challenge Daytona PTO Championship. Both guys sang his praises and praised the incredible team culture that he's created. And the clean sweep at the Bermuda World Triathlon Series race in 2018 by the Norwegian men with Kasper Stornes, Christian Blumenfeld, and Gustav Eden really has positioned Norway as a strong force and very much on the radar in the world of triathlon. And I've been just so eager to get him on the show to get a bit of a sense of the, the why, the how, and the what of his training culture and how he's able to identify talent and then build that talent to the top of the world and perform when it matters. So welcome and thank you for joining me on the Greg Bennett Show, A Real Sveiten. How are you, mate? Hi, Greg. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm doing great. And uh, it's an honor for me to be on the show with you. Uh, wow. And the introduction is just, yeah, it's just too much for me because I'm, I'm one of the guys who's been involved in the sport for many years. And you are one, one of the athletes I really looked up to, up to when I was young. Uh, we are around the same age, but when I tried to uh, make a sport of uh, triathlon myself. So, yeah, so it's an honor to be with you and uh, well, looking forward to the chat, chat today. Well, thank you, mate. But I think the honor's all mine. I really appreciate that. Where, where are you um, calling me from at the moment? Where are you in the world? Uh, I'm actually right now in in, in Oslo, Norway. Uh, I should be at the training camp with the athletes, but I'm home a little while. Mm. Um, but uh, my athletes are done in uh, altitude in southern Spain, in Sierra Nevada. Oh, okay, okay. Have you been able to get to a few training camps, even with sort of all the lockdowns and everything at the moment? Have you been able to get away for a few camps? Yes, I've been away a few camps. Um, the Atlas has more or less been uh, in Portugal and now in Spain the last two and a half months. Uh, oh, okay. The Christian has been in France actually a few weeks. Uh, I, and I have been with them in total around four weeks. Uh, but the, the challenge, you know, um, I have a family, I have two small kids, I try to be at home a little bit while and when you go home you have the quarantine, the travel restrictions, it's it's quite difficult and um, I, I just have to mention uh, last time I was in Portugal for two weeks before I traveled down and need to take a PCR test to see that I have no COVID-19 and then you come down, you take a new test and then you stay in quarantine at the, this training center we were. And then you have the training camp. When you're going back home again, the day before you went home, a new test, 
you're going to the airport just before the, the flight, a new test, and then you're flying <laughs> to actually uh, uh, flying to Copenhagen and have a new test. It ended up that they're having eight tests within that period just to <laughs> be allowed to, to go on training camp. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Eight tests in, in a matter of just a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, within, within two weeks. And, uh, and then you need to get back home and then you are in uh, self-quarantine. Uh, I can be with my family, but I should not go to do something wow. else. Okay, I can go out for my training alone. It's no problem. But yeah, uh, yeah. The, the restrictions in Norway and also in many other countries in Europe and probably also in the US, is it could be some challenging, especially if you want to do some traveling <laughs> and prepare yeah. for racing and training. Well, I've seen that with some of the athletes just trying to even travel over to the Challenge Miami race that just happened this last sort of month and uh, just just trying to move around the world right now is just so, so difficult. How, you mentioned kids. How old are your kids? Uh, I have a, a twin daughters. They are nine years old, so okay. um, they are growing up. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it's um, – yeah, I actually uh, – my – I am divorced now, but my ex-wife, we, we got the kids from us, actually started in the job. So I'll probably make some very strange judgment because I quit my normal day full-time job uh, at the time when my ex-wife got the kids and started in the, in the role as a yeah, sport director and a head coach for the national team back uh -huh. in 2011. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's been fairly consuming, I imagine, once you sort of started. I mean, that's the thing. M most of these federations, they have a, a head triathlon coach and then they have a, a separate sort of sports director. But with you in Norway, you, you're wearing many hats. How are you able to sort of – I mean, that's a, that's a lot to take on. You're able to sort of compartmentalize and, and put enough energy into both? It is challenging uh, in many ways, but uh, – I like to say that I, it's very easy to ag agree with me because I, I make the decision. And uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, that's the positive side. But uh, the serious part of it, when I started the job, I was actually asked to be the sport director. Mm. And I could just do what normal sport director do, did. But I actually saw that the main trouble we had with athletes that they have no coach and we know had have no culture for high performance sports or oh, we have culture for high performance sports, but not in triathlon in Norway. So I saw that if I didn't take that role too, we were not able to develop the athletes. Mm, mm. Uh, and uh, so I actually gave myself that role. I didn't have to, but uh, right now I, I'm, I'm, more comfortable be being the coach with the athlete, but uh, as a part of the sport director, you also organize the whole program. And uh, now we're working a lot with the development of the younger athletes. Uh, we bring in other coaches uh, to to support them and also to support the top athletes. So it's a, it's a lifestyle. You spend your whole days and every day uh, working. Mm. Hopefully, I, I will. I will do most of the time working as a coach, but I see more and more doing administrative things. But uh, you do what you love most in the world, so it's I, it's not bad. <laughs> that's it's truly incredible that you started off thinking you're going to be a sports director. Thought, well, somebody better coach these guys, 
Yeah. You didn't just step in. It's it's really quite remarkable what you've done in this 10-year window. I mean, if I just look at the world ranking of, you know, the guys that I mentioned in the introduction, you know, Gustav Eden right now is ranked number seventh on the uh, IT world rankings. Christian Blumenfeld, 11th. Kasper Storner's 18th. Uh, the women are coming with, with uh, is it Lotte Miller? How do I say? Uh, Lotte, Lot- uh, Lotte Miller, yes. Lotte Miller's coming. She was She's ranked 66, but she did finish 23rd in the World Series in, in 2019. So she's on her way. Yeah. So, it's, that for me, from a country where, you know, I've been in the sport 35 years and Norwegians were never the ones that were like, okay, here come the Norwegians. I mean, you've developed it from almost scratch. I mean, I'm fascinated. Well, I'm fascinated by so yeah. many things, but I mean, let's start with how do you identify the talent? How did that all start? Oh, um, that is, um, in more ways, a tricky question. But on the <laughs> other hand, uh, on the other hand, it's quite easy because I actually took the atlas we had. So uh, it, it was actually no kind of uh, talent identification at all. Uh, mm. I, I have to tell you, the first time I meet the athletes, the, the federation was so small; we had no resources. And, and I was asked to join the youth team that uh, was supposed to be the youth team on the, on the weekend camp. And they invited all young athletes between 14 and 16 in Norway who was doing triathlon or planned to do triathlon. Yeah. And it ended up becoming up to 20 athletes. That was all in Norway. It was not a part of the Norway. It was all young athletes in Norway doing that sport. Out of this, we have four on the national team today, and three of them have, have been winning big races. And uh, yeah, it is uh, Christian Blumenfeld. He was there the first day. Uh, Lotte Miller, uh, Gustav Eden, Casper uh, Stornes. He actually come came in the year later. Mm. They were not especially good at all, but that was the one we had. So out of this, we we should try to pick a. Uh, kind of a national team, but most of them were not so interested in sport because they were, they were on the training camp because they have a free weekend of uh, <laughs> training. <laughs> so, uh, but, but out of them, we picked a team of 14 athletes. And mm. I would say that most of them was not very good, but we had the few of them. Mm. And, and, and it was not like you need to have a ta- talent identification. You need to work with the athletes you have. Mm, at that mm. time and in many ways you can say that maybe i was lucky that christian and gustav was part of that but i would also say that in triathlon i don't think it's so much about talent identification it's more to find the the right person the right uh, personality uh, and try to find uh, and and do good coaching and work with them in, in a proper way and I think you can make big stars of almost everyone uh, if you just uh, learn them to know them as a person. You get to know them and you do the good thing about what you should do as a coach with them. And uh, out of that, I think you can create diamonds out of stones. Um, I, I, I'm so, so for us, it's not so much about it talented vacation or talent at all is about the, 
driving force you have as an athlete to do the work you want to do. Mm. Uh, and when I started, uh, it's also quite funny because w- when I started out, I was on that um, camp before I started in the position. And I have to say that I was actually not so interested in working with young athletes. Uh, at that time, I had my normal job. Uh, I have a good life. Uh, I was doing some training myself. I was doing some age group Ironman racing. And uh, I was quite happy with that. And was, I had been started coaching some uh, age group Ironman athletes. And, uh, and it's not to be rude or anything, but that is quite easy. Mm. And, and it was quite well paid. And it's sort of like, okay, I don't need to do anything more. Why should I start working with young athletes that I barely don't know who's going to go for the Olympics? So I was, so they asked me many times, Emma, can you come and meet the athletes? Can you come and see them? And, and when I met them the first time, uh, that was actually 11 years ago. I said, well, okay, maybe uh, they have, I saw there's a lot of nice guys, right personalities, and they want to work hard. But most of them was, I have to say, was really correct. I was, I was beating them in all disciplines. At that time, I, I was, uh, I, w- I was 40 years old, and uh, you know, as the typical uh, uh, age group who think you are better than you are, but but I was actually better than them at that time. <laughs> I love that. I mean, you've yeah. touched on so much in, in that. And what I really like about that is the way, you, um, you know, I think when we, we, we discuss what is talent, you know, and, and what is talent identification, because the physical side of things, like you said, with the right coaching, with the right consistent training over long periods of time of sort of doing the right work, well, that's only a part of talent identification. I, I think yeah. what you've got is some athletes that all have a tremendous desire to be the very best in the world. And somehow, and we can go deeper into this, somehow with some great coaching, you're able to keep them all working together. And it's this team culture that I'm fascinated with, how you keep these these guys that are all trying to be the very, very best in the world prepared to continually work with each other. So let's touch right on that because, I mean, when you've got pretty strong personalities, you know, and and some pretty big egos because you need those if you're going to be great, how are you finding you managing, you know, especially these three guys that we've been talking about? Uh, Oh, uh, of course, that's a very complex answer. uh, But I think in many ways I was, maybe I was quite lucky because when I started working with them, uh, they were very young. So it's quite easy to try to twitch them and to turn them into the direction you want to. Mm. Uh, that is w- one part of it. And, and also something I said, uh, kind of as a joke, it's, it's a quite serious too, because the only coach that I had in triathlon in the whole life is me. Mm. They don't know anything else. And that could be good. It could be bad. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so when I started out, I, I, I could more or less dictate what I should do. It, that was in the beginning. And uh, I have to say that for, uh, before I officially started position, I was asked to work with one athlete. They said, 
please, if you don't have the position, can you at least start working with one athlete? And that was Christian. Hmm. And so I've been working with him since he was yeah, 16 years old. And now he's 27. So it's been a, quite a long time. And he had really big motivation to do what is needed to do. Mm. And I was at that time, I don't have really big experience of coaching young athletes. So in one way, you can say I was lucky because we were pushing it quite hard, but he tolerated and he enjoyed, enjoyed it. But then we find a way to work together and I see his driving force, his motivation, and he was the leading star in the team. And then we put in, when I started officially in the job, then we suddenly have also have good stuff. We have, uh, of course, Casper, but we also have some other athletes and good swimmers who's been a part of this in for a few years. We put them in together with uh, Christian, mm-hmm. and he has always been the leading star, and he was always the one who's pushing. And... And I tried to follow up on that. And out of that, we started to create an environment that it is, we're working to be the best in the world. I was very clear when we started that we don't set any limits for ourselves. We just go for, try to establish a culture, an environment, a team culture that we work together to try to be best athletes in the world. Mm. Um, uh, and it's happening happening over time. But uh, uh, at that time, I, I will just, if I'm allowed to, I can give you a short brief of my triathlon career. Please, I was not, please. Yes, I would, uh, because it's not I want to brag about myself because I was not good. But <laughs> I learned, <laughs> you, you know, I, I was, um, I, I was the, like the boy who's standing on the other side of the fence and see you big guys racing at the high, high level. I, I'm the one who wanted to be with you. I wanted to go to the Olympics, yeah. uh, but I was never good enough. Mm. At that time, I, I was kind of... Okay, it was all, all the other world. You were from Australia. You had nice weather, warm temperature. We were in cold Norway. We did have the Monday. A lot, you make a lot of excuses why we were not succeeding. And it, we were like, ah, oh, this is too difficult for us in Norway. No one wants to sponsor us. There's no money in it. Uh, and, and then we started to, to be quite happy to be the best in Norway, because it's always someone who's best in Norway. And internationally, we were really, really bad. But we were just making a lot of excuses for ourselves why we didn't succeed. Mm. So when I was asked to, to, to take in this position, I said, there's two things I learned from what I did as an athlete. First, you should never set any limits for yourself. Because we, we thought that it's impossible for us to be the best in the world because we were from Norway and always a cold country and a lot of excuses. So don't set any limit for yourself. You can always achieve what you mm. want to do. Mm. And it was also something that in the, up in north, in little Norway, we were quite happy to be the best in Norway because... It was a little triathlon community who looked up to the best athletes, of course. But then you set too much limit on yourself and 
you should no, never be satisfied. So another thing I learned, never be too satisfied with what you have achieved. You can always do better. Mm. So when I started with, with these athletes, I started from day one to say that, okay, we are in this together. We are working to try. We should be the best athletes in the world. We should win the gold in Olympics and whatever. Okay, we haven't achieved so much yet, but um, I should not be the one who set limits to the athletes of what they could achieve and what they, what is good enough. So for us, that is always be the leading star. You should always aim for the best to the top, mm. no matter what what we started out with. And in the beginning, we were not good at all. But everyone had the motivation to try to go a little bit harder, a little bit further, a little bit longer, to try to achieve to be the best. You, you know what I love about that is your experience in your own career of loving the sport of triathlon and kind of standing on the sidelines and, and watching others kind of go about their their business. But the learning lessons you have from that and going, hang on, we, we, we put limits on ourselves and, and that's that's not what we're going to do. And so what you've, you, you, you're doing probably every day over the last 10, 11 yeah. years working with these young athletes is you're just freeing them yeah. from any constraints, from, from any excuses, from any, and just allowing them to go race and be completely free and take on the world and realize that there is nobody that special out there. It's just the people who have done the work and the people that haven't, you know, and, and yeah. I think that's extraordinary. And, and, and that's what you've done in such a short amount of time. Like, there's very few coaches in the world that have the resume that you guys have created in Norway. I mean, it, it really is a phenomenal when we look at this past decade, go wow, and and I agree, it's taken a bit of work, but it's a snowball effect, right? You kind of got yeah. to keep building it and building it. On that, when we talk about your coaching, I mean, who are yeah. some of your biggest influences for your kind of coaching style? And were you was your have you got education in in coaching, or have you just been sort of researching as you've gone? Oh, it is uh, both, and uh, um, I have to say, as an athlete, I really look up to what Mark Allen did in his early days. Uh, it's, not that, it's not that I'm doing what he did, but he was one of the first who was starting to have focus on intensity control. He was using the heart rate monitors in the mid-80s. Yeah, with Phil Maffetone, I think. Was yeah, it? Phil Maffetone. Oh, we can yeah, yeah. have a long discussion that I don't think that's the right path to yeah. go. But, <laughs> but, but the thing is, intensity control, that you need to balance between easy training, hard training, and, and using tools to do that in the best possible way. And in the early days, it was, of course, um, uh, hard rate monitor. So, so, so I learned a little bit for, from what he did and the perspective of it, but mostly, actually, and that is maybe also a little bit controversial because when I started, I said, okay, in Norway, we are nothing in triathlon. If I try to do what they do all around the world, uh, the best thing I can hope for is to copy them. Mm -hmm. and, and if you copy what you do in US, in uh, Australia, you never be as good as the best one. You, mm -hmm. the copy is, is 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 never is always one step behind. So I was like, okay, I need to find create something myself 
uh, and it's not like I took it out of nowhere, but Norway at that time and still have a quite long traditions for huge sex and also a lot of scientists, scientific research in endurance sport. Mm -hmm. At that time, we have maybe the two best marathons runners in the world, uh, females, uh, Inge Christiansen. She, she ran 221 marathon in 1985. Uh, we have, of course, the cross country skiing team. Okay. Cross country mm -hmm. is a very little sport in, <laughs> in the rest of the world, but in no way it's big. But, but mm -hmm. I know something about endurance training. And mm -hmm. at that time, uh, the Norwegian were really good in rowing. <laughs> and that was bending up to be one of the best rowing teams in the world. And so I started looking to what did they do? What kind of training did they do? What tra training philosophy? And how can I adapt that to triathlon? Mm. And, and, and I, I got a little, little bit of experience. So I actually in many ways created what I thought was the best way to develop athletes. But I have to say when I started, I was not sure that it was the correct way to do. I'm, <laughs> because, you know, uh, uh, I, I haven't done so, uh, so much. Okay. I've been coaching age group athletes, uh, but, but I have never working with young athletes. And I remember the first two, three, four years I was thinking, Oh, this, this is going too well. Uh, I, I, I come to kill all that. I, I'm, this will stop now. When will the success stop? Uh, when will it start going backward? When will all the injury, <laughs> bad things happen? But, but slowly over the years, you actually believe hmm, what we do is probably quite sustainable way of develop athletes. So, mm. so of course, over the time, you get more and more secure about what we do is quite a way to work with athletes. But on the other hand, it's also like you more you learn the more experience you got, the more you understand that you need to learn more. Mm. So we are always develop how we work with athletes, the coaching philosophy, use of technology and everything. So it's uh, the day you say that I'm on the top, I, I know everything, then, you, you, then you're gone. It's always mm. try mm -hmm. to move forward, to learn something. To, to, uh, and the way I coach the best athletes today is very different from what I did with Christian 11 years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, and I, that I, has I, to be that, that way. I, I like so much about what you've just said then, <laughs> I especially like the don't just copy paste what everybody else is doing and then outsourcing and, and, and going to other avenues to try and figure out how to become a great triathlon coach and create a great program um, <laughs> and then never settling never settling no. with what you've come up with. It was, it was interesting. I just had Jan Fredino on, on the, the show um, and we were discussing, you know, basically he's always got a target on his back and it's yeah. almost like having that target on his back is the fueling to the, the anxiety uh, to just keep wanting more and more out of yourself. And, and I see you in that same kind of position that you've got all these champion athletes on the rise and they're all – very much a part of the conversations now of whether we're talking definitely, you know, the Olympics, whether we're talking 70.3 world champs or Christian Blumenfeld talking about, you know, breaking seven for the Ironman for seven hours for, for the, so, so you've got all of these things on, on your table. And so it's just kind of, 
the world is watching. And so we got to keep adapting. We got to keep improving. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's fantastic, though. I think that's where you yeah. keep you keep learning and you keep growing. I want to I, I really do want to spend time with you um, dissecting maybe a little bit more about the specifics of the training, if that's okay with you. Um, yes, of course. You are always yeah. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it because uh, I've always enjoyed trying to figure out how to improve endurance, how to improve strength, speed, everything we can without breaking down. And it's always a fine yeah. line, you know, between breakdown. But, you yeah. know, if, if let's start with how you were able to prepare three guys to go one, two, three at the um, Bermuda World Triathlon Series race back in 2018, which yeah. since they've changed the name to World Triathlon Series, it's never been done by a country of men, men before. The women have done it. I think they believe the American women, maybe the Brits and maybe Australians, but I'm, I'm not sure yeah. my history there. I'm sorry. But definitely for the, the first lot of men to go on that podium. What was yeah. it that you were able to do to specifically get them ready for that race? If we – was it there – they seem to be the strongest guys on the bike. But, yeah. But you tell me, what are you guys doing to prepare for some a big race like that in 2018? Well, uh, okay. Um, that day, uh, everything turns out the way that we wanted it to do to be. Uh, so we were. I would not not say we were lucky, but that was a perfect storm that everything <laughs> everything comes together, and mm. it doesn't happen so often. Uh, but but. Um, the thing is that um, up to that point, uh, the winner, Kasper Stornos, he, he was not so actually so, somewhat known. So most of the athletes and all people didn't know so much about him. Mm. But, we, but we as a team knew that he was a strong athlete, but he has been a little bad luck in his racing earlier. So he was, we knew he was a strong. Uh, but the thing is, leading up to that race, uh, we spent uh, four weeks at altitude. Um, one of the things that we try to do at least uh, three to four months a year is to train at altitude. Mm. Um, to train at altitude, especially at the altitude we did at that time, uh, and we also do every spring, uh, Sierra Nevada, mm -hmm. that is located at 2,300 meters. That's quite high. Uh, so I don't know what, this in feet, but the, the altitude is demanding. Uh, yeah, so probably about 8,000 feet, I think, yeah. At that level, so high in altitude, it's very, you should, should be very uh, careful about doing too much anaerobic work. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do that, you will probably just, yeah, it will be too much. So it's building a big aerobic base. So most of the intervals we did was build around letter threshold and everything like that. So it's quite basic, high volume. Mm -hmm. But but it's two things that is special with the Sianavala. You, you live at the center at 2,300 meters, which means that every time you are out on the bike, you have at least 90 minutes of continuous uphill cycling. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's very difficult to travel out of Sierra Nevada and not be in better bike shape than before the camp started. It's yeah. almost impossible because yeah, it's fantastic to, um, to cycle there. And um, I know you had the, the head coach from Jan Frodeno, uh, Dan Lorang, uh, at, yes. your, your at your show. And he's there with uh, his cycling team, Bora Hans Grohe. 
several times a year. So we know that when we are there in March, April, it's the place where all the big um, overall contender for the the Giro d'Italia are, are training and preparation for the Giro d'Italia. There's a lot of really good cycling staff. Uh, mm. So so it's a very good place for training, especially cycling. But um, but when it comes down to the to to the race, uh, what we did in uh, in Sierra Nevada was just m- mostly basic training with high volume, a lot of intervals at the threshold. But then we did something extra on, on the bike because uh, we take took a look at the course. Uh, um, Bermuda race that was the first time that was on the race calendar, so we mm-hmm. actually didn't know the course, but we knew it would be a quite short steep hill there the corkscrew hill so so we were discussing the tactic and the, the normal tactics is that okay we need to attack on the hill because that was everyone expect everyone to do because you but in the nature of most triathlete they go all out uphill and then that's they spend the rest of the loop to recover until they come to the hill next time um, and uh, so it's very difficult to get rid of some of the cyclists there. So what's actually happened that um, uh, Kasper, he was quite early in the race, he was leading. Uh, so he was quite at the front when he came to the top. And then he did what we had planned to do, just keep pushing over the top when he going slowly downhill. Mm-hmm. And then it was a time where the rest of the field need to relax to recover from going so hard uphill. For us, we didn't, we knew what we could do because in training, we have created the same hill with the same incline. So we knew how hard it would be. And we were calculated how many, the power of output we should do going up that hill mm. and how we should push at the threshold intensity after the hill. So we were actually training specific on that to work anaerobic for uh, 45 seconds and then work hard on the threshold until you go to the next loop and go up again. So that was what we actually been preparing for. Mm. Uh, so Casper so was actually doing that. He, he didn't plan to attack or anything. He just did what he ha- we had planned to do, all of the team. And when he, he got the lead, uh, of course, he just followed his own, his own pace. And then Christian and Gustav, in many ways, <laughs> they could not do so much because they didn't want to be the guy who wanted to, <laughs> to, to, to go after him. But but what they did actually is when they knew that his leads were so big that it was no way that the likes of Mario Mola or some of them could run him down. I said, okay, we go after him because, but if we go after him, we need to attack in a way that no one else is follow us. And at that time, I think that um, he had two and a half meters of the main group. And all the boys knew that Casper and them were in a running shape that is no way that uh, the big guys running more and more, more like we catch him. So they went after him and they were able to all, I uh, not, uh, they, they didn't caught him, but uh, they were within one minute, one minute, 15 after him. But the, still the main pack was two minutes, 30 seconds behind. And, and, and then it was just 
you can control your own race. And uh, yeah, so it's in many ways a perfect day. And um, it's a lot of me memories from, from that. Mm. And one of the things is because you saw during the race that, wow, it could actually happen that we can have a podium sweep. But the first time I really understand it, And that was, I think, quite funny. Um, you know, Chris Gamble, who's working for the World Triathlon, <laughs> he's come over to me. Uh, uh, Ariel, yes, uh, I have a serious question for you. Okay, we are in the middle of the race. What do you want to ask me about? Do you have an extra Norwegian flag? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the thing is, he knew that they just have two Norwegian flags. Oh, no. So, so when... The boys from the last lap on the bike, he actually approached me and asked me for an extra flag. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Did you, did you have it? Uh, actually, the mother of uh, Christian was there, so, so she had the flag. Oh so uh, I was able to get the flag, and that was also the flag I was gave to Casper when he was uh, mm -hmm. running over the finish line. But, but he was so exhausted that he just threw the flag away. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 uh, so we need to spend some time to find it. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but uh, in the end, we actually had uh, all three flags. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! Uh, and uh, but the, the fun part of it, of course, he asked me at the the last lap on the bike, "You have the flag?" And then I said, "Wow, this could actually happen." <laughs> And, um, he asked on the bike, excuse yeah, me, but he still had a lap of the bike. That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. One lap on the bike. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. So he still had 10K to go in the run, but he was, he was that confident. I love that. Yeah, he was. And um, no, it, 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 was a, it was a good memory. And uh, I also remember the mother of Casper uh, called me when he had one lap to go on the run. And she was so nervous. She was crying. Oh, he will break down. He will break. He cannot finish it. Ah, I said, relax. He will win. No problem. Sit down, relax. And uh, she was back in Norway and uh, watching the race. So, um, no, it, it was good. And, uh, oh, it was, uh, that was probably the first time most of the world in triathlon knew about the Norwegian, of course. Mm. Well, especially Christian have had some really good results before, but. That was when it maybe changed a little bit that we get a lot oh, of attention. Yeah. It a hundred percent did. And and just huge congratulations. You know, I can just listening to you tell that story, it's 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 I think it's left a mark on you for the rest of your life. I think it must have been a, a just a truly, truly special moment to have that clean sweep. The the way And the maturity of uh, Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld, probably the more the two more senior athletes out of the three, being prepared to wait and yeah. wait and wait on that bike yeah. until until they knew their teammate had enough. That almost gives me goosebumps because there's very few yeah. people that I, I know. For most other federations, it's quite often you know I know my own federation. If I attack, I was always getting hunted down by the other Aussies. It was it was never. Yeah. Uh, Oh, Greg's up the road. Let's have, hope an Aussie wins. I just think that's a very, very special. And I, I, I'm fascinated by the attitude work, um, you know, for us living in, in Boulder, Colorado, and, and, you know, we both, Laura, my wife and I experimented a lot with the different kinds of training. We always felt we obviously got a lot out of, out of the altitude training, um, but we were always very careful 
we 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 responded well to altitude training if we went there already somewhat fit. Um, yeah. If we went up unfit, it really took a process to just get to a basic fitness level before you could sort of optimize the altitude. Do you guys approach it very cautiously like that? Are you going in fit? Are you kind of have an idea of where you want to be before you go up there? Uh, yes, we do. Um, the first year we did altitude, we didn't knew so much about it. So we, but we knew that we need to rest well and be be, be fit, mm. but also well rested. And and then we always. Of course, started out the training, uh, first training block was very easy. Uh, and, uh, but that is something we have developed a little bit more during the years because for now we know, uh, what we can do of training at altitude. And we also need to, we know what we want to have out of it. So it's sometimes we need to do some special preparation and special training before going into altitude because mm -hmm. it's some of the things that we cannot train so much at altitude. So we need to do that before. And, and that the scientific part on how we prepare to going into altitude is that has improved a lot during the years. But, mm. uh, but in many ways, of course, <laughs> to go into altitude with a tired body, in no way you can recover. No, 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 no. We, what Laura and I found, um, and, I, and I, just a quick story on us because I, this, this show is about you, but I just, we would find, uh, we would go back up to altitude and a bit like you said, you know, really focusing on the endurance side of things, aerobic and, and the, the lactic threshold and never going above it. But for us, that first couple of weeks back up there was very gentle. But what we would often do is plan a, a 10k hard running race back down at sea level sort of two weeks in and then we'd come back from that running race and we found the adaption almost accelerated by going down to sea level to get that very hard intense running race yeah. at sea level are you guys experimenting with things like that or is it just uh focusing on the lab results or oh it depends uh Especially when we're going to this first camp of the year, <clears throat> we are most based of the scientific, scientific data we have before we're going into the camp. But we also normally use, for instance, Fond Rameur in the, in the French Pyrenees yeah, during yeah, no, the whole, well. uh, mo yeah, most of the summer. I think that is, uh, it's not so high. It's uh, mm -hmm. 1800 meters. So you can do a little bit different training, but during the summer we, uh, last year and also the year before we had that also almost a home base during the whole season. So then we are there and going to do the races and coming back up again. Mm. And, um, and at that time we, we do some race specific training or racing, uh, when we are at altitude. And, uh, mm. and that is something that works out really well. Um, we also done it, uh, in the, Camp we have in uh, September, October in Sierra Nevada. Uh, we have used it, for instance, one year when uh, Christian and the boys was preparing for uh, the first 70.3 race they did. Um, they have a little bit break between the camp and going to Dures, not to Dures, to Malta to do the, um, the Super League races. And that mm -hmm. was, that, you know, is of course fast and <laughs> <laughs> in very high intensity. So, so they were doing that, going back up to altitude and prepare for the, um, uh, the 743 race in Bahrain. Uh, that was in 2018. So where Christian won for in front of Gustav and the Kastman third place. So 
yeah, so, so we do a, a lot of that too, especially during the season. Mm, I, I like yeah. how you're measuring the um, c- combining the speed if you can find it down at sea level, going back up to the altitude, getting the building the engine, the heart and lungs, and the strength and in the endurance. I think it's a it's a really great balance to have because you're not winning even a seventy point three these days unless you've got enough speed, you know, unless you've yeah. got that power. So you need yeah. to be have you need to be able to do both. Um, and I also like the the way that you're experimenting with the different altitude bases um yeah. you know the six thousand feet or 1800 meters at font rameau and and we we trained there a bit and that's very much similar to to boulder colorado yeah. or colorado springs similar kind of altitude gain actually do you know do you know uh, a marathoner by the name of frank shorter from the 1970s he won the yeah, 1972 yes. marathon he's part of the whole running boom anyway frank shorter is actually our neighbor in boulder he's two doors down from us and and i remember having a conversation with frank and he was telling me look greg we look at altitude like this he said we look at it in increments if you consider yeah. 5000 feet as one increment then 6000 feet sorry as yes one increment then 6000 feet as two increments so 6000 feet being the 1800 meters that you just said with font rameau and then every 1000 feet is an increment above that um, yeah. And so when you are training at Boulder, which tends to be more that five to 6,000 feet, you can get away with this, 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 and this. And he would outline it. And then he said, look, we would go up to Vale or up, in, up into the mountains more where it was more the eight to 9,000 feet, a bit like what yeah. you're saying with um, Sierra Nevada. And it's kind of like combining the two and understanding the stresses on the body. Have you been able to do a lot of testing in both locations to see the effects of the kind of training that you're getting from that altitude? <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, we have done some tests on that, and um, so, uh, we have, of course, we do, of course, the performance tests, but we also do some uh, tests to see uh, the anaerobic threshold, power, pace, and everything, and do some small race simulation. Uh, we also done some of the most interesting thing. We took a look at the blood data to see how the uh, mm-hmm. red cells and the blood hemoglobin is increasing during different altitude uh, and try to find the optimized way to how long you should be at altitude and, and, and at mid level uh, and um, that is some of the, the research we are doing more and more out of now right. uh, and um, we also try to mix up a little bit about heat training uh, some, sometimes uh, at altitude uh, and that is an extra factor. So it's not that you need to go higher, but you put in some extra stress factor because, mm-hmm. and then you, if you, <laughs> I have to say, if you are sitting in a heat chamber at, in Sierra Nevada with a temperature of 35 degrees, the same as you were racing in Tokyo, the stress on the body is, oh. is quite demanding. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I mean, all of this thing, you know, we call it heat or altitude or whatever. All of it, if we just put it in one bag, is called stress. And yeah. the reason we want to stress ourselves is to become stronger, to overcome the stress and become stronger. Yeah. What we've got to be careful at doing is adding too much stress at once. It's kind of layering it and layering it and layering it to allow yourself to get stronger and stronger and stronger. But if you if yeah if you approach it with, with too much too soon, it can really yeah. really do some damage. I I'll be fascinated when you guys all retire. There there is going to be a lot of people that are going to want to see this data that you guys have collected over the yeah. you know this whole period because that I mean like you working with the Norwegian cross country ski team, uh, yeah. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there going 
the data, because I know after talking to Chris Driven and Gustav on the show, like I mentioned, you know, how often you guys are testing and looking at the body's responses to stress and the data you're collecting, I just think that's going to be a fascinating read one of these days. When, when you guys open it up to us all, um, that's yeah. just going to be absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we, we plan on that. Uh, but I have to say that uh, the big data collector in those team is our sports scientist. He's mm-hmm. actually, I, I actually see he tried to call me right now from Sierra Nevada, but uh, <laughs> he's doing a lot of tests uh, with Atlas. He's the, he's the, the most, the mind of some of the things. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he's one of the, the thing that the driving force that always make us try to improve. Uh, I, I've been the coach for, uh, for the Atlas for, you know, 10, 11 years. And, uh, I, improve as a coach and you learn day by day and you always try to be better. Mm. But after the Olympics in Rio, we put in uh, the sports scientist called Olaf Alexander on the team. And he's mm. the one who's challenging me more. But we, we established new test routines um, and he wants to find more data. So, so now we are, the last four years, we have been collecting much more data than we did the, the first years. And that is something at one time, at one point, we want to share. Uh, and he is working with a lot of researchers all over the world. And uh, he he is one of the reasons that we have been so successful. Even I'm the coach and make the program and everything, but he's the one who is doing the big data analysis. And he's, he's like me, always want to be better, always improve. And, and he's, we, we call him the mad professor. Uh, and he's like, Everything uh, we do, and if you use, uh, let's say we go to the velodrome, uh, we want to test some aerodynamic drag, and then he, of course, have the tools to do that. Wow. But then he found out that, okay, the tools that you use for that is not good enough. So then he go to the manufacturer of that, and then you start discussion with the, the brand, and then they improving even more. Um, for instance, we have been using the power meters for running street sensor for many years, and he's in discussion with them almost on daily basis. Look here, we see the data here. You can still do it better. You can improve that. You should look at that algorithm uh, and working on v- with many of the big brands a lot of the time to make the product we use for that analysis even better. Yeah, I love all of that because it takes a village, right? I mean, it takes it takes a whole team uh, of great minds. I particularly like someone like Ula who's got that engineer, that scientific mindset. There's a problem and I want to fix it. You know, like yeah. there's, a, there's, there's a variable there that's not running as smooth as I want, so how do I fix it? So to have a, a fixer on your team, somebody that's yeah. out there that just loves problem solving, oh, that's, that's just fascinating. That's just fantastic for the, yeah, whole, so the whole team. Yeah, I, yeah that, good on you for, for outsourcing <laughs> that as well, mate, because yeah. I want to I step into, um, we talked about Bermuda, but the other yeah. really, really cool one, and, and I know there's been quite a few, but I really like this one as well, was Ironman 70.3 World Championships in, in Nice in 2019 with yeah. Gustav Eden. Really almost a surprise, even though we'd seen him, I think everybody thought Alistair Brownlee and yeah. all the, you know, tremendous field, one of the best fields we've ever seen, and, and Gustav yeah. owned that race, and Christian came in uh, fourth, I think, on the day. Yeah, but, he was fourth. Uh, uh, yeah. But a great day all around again. Tell me about the preparation for that race and what that one was like for you. Oh, uh, that was also kind of a good preparation, but 
the thing that was different uh, with that preparation is that the preparation we did was for the the Olympic test event in Tokyo and the yeah, WTS right. grand final. So yeah. all the training we did was for that. So so we were actually most of the summer we were in Fogruma and uh, doing the base training there. And and then we went over to um, uh, to Japan and we had a place. Uh, we have a cooperation with the Japanese Federation uh, and they, they found a place for us uh, uh, two hours outside uh, Tokyo, where we did uh, a lot of the um, uh, the heat training to prepare for the Tokyo test event, and we did really good training there. And you probably heard it before, but that was the place where Gustav found his famous Tavansk uh, <laughs> cap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, 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 but basically, all the training was we did was leading up to the Olympic distance races we did in. Uh, in, in uh, Tokyo and uh, of course in Grand Final in Lausanne, uh, and a part of that story, who in many ways explains a little bit of the result in um, in this, was that um, uh, Christian had a terrible crash in Tokyo. Mm. Uh, he was not able to finish the race, and he could barely not walk. Uh, he could not walk at all. So when he <laughs> We actually wow. traveled back to Norway. He was sitting in a wheelchair. Wow. Yeah. And, um, it was, it was really frustrating for him and for us because he could not yeah, walk and move his legs. And when we was going back to Europe, it was yeah, 12 days before the grand final in, in the sun mm. and he could not run. And, uh, he was able to have his first running, uh, after seven or eight days, he was able to move his leg a little bit and he, he could bike, he could swim and he could have his first run six days before the grand final in, in Lausanne. Um, in the end, it turned out that the, the grand final was very good race for him because yeah, he was, yeah. he, he was in his shape of, of his life. Finally, uh, he won. Finally, <laughs> <yeah>. he won. <laughs> Finally, he won. Uh, uh, and um, we were, of course, very happy for that. Um, and we also knew that he was in even better shape in Tokyo. So that is a race he would have won. Uh, but but that doesn't matter. He, he was not able to finish. But in, in many ways, the training he missed, he was a lot of... Uh, energy and ready for the the Luzon race but it was a little bit big uh, uh, he was not fresh enough uh, not fresh but trained enough to to do a BS's best life in uh, in, in the uh, 73 world championship because mm -hmm. he, he lost one week of training at a quite crucial time of the uh, tapering process so but um, but Gustav he was there he was four in the test event, he was four in uh, Luzon, mm -hmm. and then, and he's in a kind of an easy going guy. And because we were discussing the race strategy, what we should do before the Nice race, and he was like, "Ah, I just, I just use my uh, normal road bike." Uh, he had told <laughs> that story many times, uh, but but he didn't want to stress with changing his bike and whatever. And I was like, ah, I'm good in the hills and I'm good technical downhill, so it would be no problem. Uh, and 
the only thing we can do between these races was just try to learn the cycling course in this uh, because it's quite technical. So they were able to um, to train on that uh, a lot of times, uh, and we were also working on a little bit of the nutrition plan to optimize that. Mm. So we knew mm. that the, everything was perfect, and we did, did some calculation um, on the power output, what he could keep uh, going the uphills to be able to to run what he was able to do. At that time, when we were sitting down and discussing that, we, we were quite sure that both him and Christian could be able to run 108 uh, half marathon. Um, and, and we were actually planning for them to do that. Um, mm. And it, it ended up that uh, Gustav did it. Uh, Christian was a little bit tired, uh, so he was not able to do that. And I said that he missed a little bit too much of training leading up to that race, especially to perform at the highest mm. level of the 70.3 race. But anyway, but Gustav was fresh and fit. And um, and I, I think one of the big success that um, he was, when he was going uphill, he was very good to get into nutrition. He was very good to um, pace himself. He, he was biking on the intensity he needed to do. So mm. Alistair, he was getting away. Um, from bag two, uh, so but he knew that he was so good in the technical downhill, so we were able to catch them. Uh, and um, the best thing he did after that, when he coming into transition, but he decided to to have a quick transition, no socks, and just take the, everything with him and run. Because what happened then was that uh, Alistair was 15, 20 seconds behind, and uh, Alistair is a very aggressive racer. So, of course, he will go after Gustav. There's <laughs> uh, no way it could turn out other ways. And um, we had a feeling if that happening, that uh, Alistair could outpace himself and uh, start out a little bit too hard. Uh, on the other hand, we knew that Gustav knew he can run 108. So if he knew that, he started out in that pace. He is, yeah. he's, he's not planning to go 106. Because yeah. we knew that if you do 108, it will be good. And he knew yeah. that with the pacing he did on the bike, with the nutrition he planned on, he could run 108. Of course, you need to have your day uh, and, uh, and everything you need to turn out as you plan. But if you make good plan planning, it's quite often that you have a chance to, <laughs> to actually uh, achieve what mm. you plan to do. Mm. The, the the planning there is I I think fascinating. Um, there's so many parts to what you just said, um, starting on the final part there of understanding the way a competitor is going to perform or, or or race and the importance of not putting on socks or having a quick transition because you know they love to lead from the front and they're going to make themselves get to the front. So you're affecting their race. You know, yeah. it's they always people always say, oh, you can only control yourself. You can only control yourself. But I've always been a big believer. You see. I'm trying to make, not only am I wanting to have a good day, but I'm trying to make sure my competitors don't have their best day. And if I can do something that affects them to not have their best day, yeah. then it just goes in my favor. And, and that's what you guys did with Alistair Brownlee there. I think it's just incredible. Then I think, you know, maybe using the road bike so he was able to afford himself to climb the, 
the hill and fuel at the same time while climbing. You know, it's not easy yeah. if your heart rate's through the roof to be fueling because he had the confidence in his descending, probably because he was on a road bike a little bit more than a time trial bike, I'd, I'd imagine. Um, yeah. Obviously, he's a good descender anyway. So I, I like all of that planning. I'm fascinated um, when you said Christian Blumenfeld had one week off training and so he was going to maybe miss – have you guys found through your testing that one week of training would affect a performance that dramatically? Uh, no, we didn't know for sure. Um, mm. So we, of course, hope that he would be ready. Uh, and uh, in many ways, he was fit. Uh, so it was, yeah, as, he was not totally out of training. It was mostly he was not able to run. Uh, I think for, for Christian, the biggest challenge uh, the week leading up to Nice that um, he, he got a new bike. Of course, he got a time for a bike and he got very little time to, um, to mm. do big, good bike fit. So his position was not optimal. So, so he didn't find himself too comfortable on the bike at that time. Mm. Uh, and that also, especially when you're going downhill, it's uh, quite tough when you are not familiar with the bike. So I think that was the biggest challenge. So he burned a little bit too matches and then he, he lost a little bit of the training that he didn't have the really the edge to, to do one away the half marathon that we planned to do because of the missing training. But it's really, really small margins. And in an, another race like that year, of course, it set the world record on, you know, on the 73. So yeah. yeah, so, and, but it's funny that both Christian and Gustav, they were training together every day, every session toward the race. And they were, they were talking about the tactics, going up the hills, they're learning about the curves and how to attack the, the downhills and everything. So they, they were in it together and they did a really good job of supporting and helping each other to both of them to be at their best. Well, I think it was an incredible back-to-back -back weeks for you guys, uh, you know, with, with Christian winning the grand final and then the next week, Gustav Eden winning the 70.3 World Championships. I mean, these they, peaking for these these big events, let's talk tapering because I think that's yeah. getting that right, especially when you're combining extra stresses like uh, altitude training and the heat, at, heat at adaptation. When are you coming down from altitude? How far out would you do that? I mean, if these are secrets, I understand, but I'm gonna I'm gonna no. stab, and if you give up away some, that'd be great. But uh, just having an understanding of tapering is is critical for all of us when we want to have a peak performance. Uh, yes, uh, I think it's no trouble dis discussing and talk about that. But what we see that is a little bit individual uh, coming down. From from altitude to sea level uh, and it's uh, also a little bit based on what races you do so as i say that many times we have doing some quite big races we are at altitude and just going down and the race two days after uh, and in general i would say that two three days after altitude block you should be quite ready to, to race, but from uh, maybe around day five to day eight, nine, it's um, very often you feel that the athlete are, is not responding so well. Like it could be good, it could be bad, <laughs> but from then 10, 10 to uh, 12, 14, they are normally in a window, they are performing very well. Uh, and that is quite normal, but we also see that you get a kind of a second wave 
up to two, four weeks after altitude. So <laughs> it, it's many strategies we can use. And what strategy we use is a little bit based on where we are, what races we are going to do, and so on. Uh, for instance, uh, talking about Bermuda early on, uh, that's a typical race that we uh, come down to sea level 11 days b b before the race, then we are quite sure. Mm -hmm. uh, for the test event in uh, Tokyo, we were, it was, uh, I, I think, 12, 14 days, quite basic. But then you still have the grand final two weeks after that again. Mm -hmm. So, so there in another window. So, there's no way you could go up to altitude and have a little micro block. So, you, you just, then you need to make the tapering work for all three races. Mm. So within, uh, yeah, it was two and a half weeks, they actually did three races. And if you look at the history, I think it's not often you have seen athletes performing at that high level in, in, in so, so period of the time. You saw that uh, Gustav, he was fourth in the test event. He was fourth in the grand final and he won the, the Nice race. And that was within three weeks. Mm. It's incredible. And, and what about with the heat? I mean, we talked about altitude. Are you finding the same kind of stimuli with the heat? Uh, or like when do you need to get out of that kind of heat adaption type training? Yeah, uh, that we have done a little bit different thing. But of course, um, heat training or heat adaptation training is something you can use for many things. One thing is, of course, to acclimatize to be ready for a race in the heat. But uh, you can also use it to... Because training in the heat, uh, that can also change the, um, uh, the blood, blood plasma, who is mm -hmm. giving some of the same kind of benefit as training in altitude. But you can do that in shorter blocks of time. So you don't need to spend three weeks in a, a heat chamber. <laughs> uh, you just need to have several sessions within a period of time and you will be quite well adapted to the heat. But of mm. course, when you're coming into the details there, then we are more some of the secrets that we have found out, how the athletes <laughs> adapt to the heat and how many yeah. days they need, what kind of training you could do in the heat uh, and all of that kind. And, um, and then we also, at that time, we used a lot of technology. We are looking at the core temperature, how the core temperature is rising. And we see that compared to the intensity or the way in the training. Uh, for instance, we can see how much the power output on the bike can affect the core temperature and how that will rise or stabilize. And, and that is very interesting field of, of data and research that um, some big nations are putting some efforts in, especially when you are leading up to the Olympics now. And uh, that's a really interesting field. And that is something you also can learn from and benefit in when you're racing other places than in, in, in the heat, because that is something you can use in your everyday training, actually. And you don't need a heat chamber. You can just dress yourself up and uh, put the, the turbo trainer in, in the bath and turn up the heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what I'm loving about this conversation is is just how passionate you are about learning and, and, and planning and trying to figure out how to do things better. Um, I want to skip over my notes here and, and get to something that I really want to talk to you about, and that's preparing 
for the 2020 Olympics, 2021 Olympics in Tokyo. And, and I guess on, you know, let's start with a very broad question on, on what do you think it's going to take to, to win the gold medal there? Well, um, first, you need to be well acclimatized so you can race in the heat. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you saw at the test event that uh, some of the big, uh, really good athletes have really trouble in the heat. Uh, mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, that is the race this year that every athlete wants to be at the, be- be at the best. Um, so I think it's, it's very quite a broad question. I, I know what we need to do, uh, and I know how we should prepare, but I know, also know that the competition will be really tough. We know that uh, suddenly uh, Mr. Br- Alison Brownlee, he found out that he maybe want to race, and uh, you have the youngster Alex Yi, who is a re- tremendous fast runner, um, and you have some of the the young New Zealand guy uh, who's, yeah, you have a lot of athletes. The French team oh. is incredibly <laughs> <Mate>. strong. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Where do you start, right? Where do you start? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's there's really 2025 20, guys that are potentially on the podium at least uh, for this Olympics, and yes, uh, it, you know, yeah. I, I just interviewed Jacob Burtwistle from Australia, and the the amount of guys that have this eye on this gold medal, uh, it's just I can't wait. Personally, I I'm so excited. How do you feel about it when the ITU? kind of look at an event and then maybe want to shorten it due to sort of temperature and things like that. What, what's your attitude towards that? Oh, uh, it's a little bit mixed. Uh, I think if you do the preparation, I think it's no problem to race on the, the normal distance uh, mm-hmm. that you normally have. And I didn't like uh, in the test event, uh, they shortened the, the distance for, for the girls. I don't think it was necessary. If you no. did the preparation uh, and are acclimatized, it should be no problem. But mm-hmm. <laughs> on the other hand, they look at the data and the health risk, and um, then you, you, it's a little bit wider perspective because they do it for the health of the athletes. And of course, you have athletes in the field. You don't want the athletes you are coaching and know to be... <laughs> destroyed because it's too hot there. Mm. But, I know. I, I, yeah. I, it's, an in, it's an interesting conversation. I, I definitely think you've got to worry about the health. I agree with you um, and yeah. what the ITU are doing. But, but <laughs> yeah. I, was, I put this on social media, actually. I was a bit disappointed in the fact that you're talking about some of the greatest physical endurance performers in the world. These yeah. are when we're talking about the men and women that are going to be racing Tokyo for triathlon. We are talking about 100, 110 um, of the greatest physical specimens on the planet. They yeah. have the greatest teams of support around them that know how to prepare for all conditions better than anybody in the world. That I think yeah. we are disrespecting the athletes themselves by not giving them the opportunity to show the world what they can do under any circumstance. And, and I, for one, was a little bit disappointed uh, on that. But anyway, yeah. that's getting political and I should probably yeah. not, I should probably stop there. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should. But I, I just want to add, we have done so much research on yeah. our athlete yeah. and we know that some of the data that the ITU or World Triathlon are, ba- are looking at are too old. Yes, there are so there are newer data who show that 
you, you can rise the temperature, you can, you can raise a higher temperature uh, than the limit is. It, yeah. You just need to do some preparation before. And and as you say, it is the best friend athletes in the world. They can handle it. And, yes. uh, and if you can't, slow down. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. <If> you, <laughs> slow down. Pace yeah. yourself. I mean, how fast do you think that 10K will be being the conditions, you know, July in Tokyo? Uh, it, it will not be like the Olympic, uh, London Olympic race where that was <laughs> just going 29 minutes, but I think they can race uh, under 30 minutes uh, and we are quite sure about that. We saw that um, at the test event, Casper, um, who was second here, ran 30, 45 or something. And based on training, uh, we saw that uh, especially Christian could gone quite much faster than that. And uh, sub 30, I'm quite sure. But mm. it's a little bit up to the pacing strategy and how the work, uh, the race will turn out because it could be a cat and mouse kind of race that the, where the, the big no. boys are just in front. I don't think no. so. But no, they, not with they, Team they were, Norway there, mate. No, with, no, team no. Nor- with, with Team Norway, Alistair Brownlee, the, this race will not have a moment of no. cat and mouse. No, Imperial. It never happened with Norwegian. So, uh, no, <laughs> not with the guys that you're training, mate. The one thing we always know when Christoph Gustav and, and Kasper are there is it's, it's a race from the gun. And, yes, and it, it will be. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a number of other guys that will join them, um, but they're, they're not going to play. I mean, I'm curious also on your thoughts on the mixed relay. We need Norway. I mean, you guys aren't quite there. You, we're, How are you going with that, that fourth, uh, well, the second woman uh, to, to have a team? Because we need to see Team Norway on that start list. Yeah, we want to be on the start list and we – have uh, we have planned to try to see what we can do but and you saw in the in the world championship in hamburg we were able to get a wild card and we ended up placing four mm-hmm. so <laughs> i think we should have a chance there but um, the challenge is uh, we have two girls fighting for the last uh, spot both of them are improving a lot but they are probably getting a little bit out of time because they need to uh, improve the Olympic uh, qualification. Uh, to it's not that we just can qualify the team. They also need to be within one hundred uh, top one hundred forty spot uh, in the Olympic qualification individually. Right, right. And, and and that is the challenge. Uh, so we are of course planning the races we want to do to, in the Olympic qualification period, but uh, it, it doesn't make it any easier when some of the races are getting cancelled because now we're getting f- less and less races that we can get the points at. So, but we will fight to the end, uh, and we have two, <laughs> and we have two girls, and they've been away three months now in training camp. Uh, well, we have three girls with Lotte, but we have two girls fighting for the last position, and and we are. Um, working really hard on them every day. Uh, the women's team, it's its a part of a process. It could be that we will not qualify the team. I will not say that we will not do it because I, I strongly believe that we will qualify. But we have a process now. We know we are including more women in the team. We are working hard with them to develop them the same way as we, we developed the, the boys uh, earlier. 
Right. Uh, and I actually said to them uh, in Portugal on Trendcap, you said to them, you know, girls, I will not rest unless you take a podium sweep in, in one in the WTS races within the next year. So I will not, not retire from coaching before you have achieved that. So just keep on working, I said to them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's fantastic, and and I and I hope I guess I, I, you know if you don't get the qualifying races or if they keep getting cancelled, I mean, would there is there an, a a wild card effect for the Olympics then for the team? Is that a possibility, or is there no such thing? Uh, it's no such thing as I have no. understand it. No, so we have we have it's two things. We need to have the. The team uh, top three in the qualification race, that is likely that we can do. Uh, and then we need to have at least one of the girls top 140 in the Olympic uh, qualification mm. list. Well, mate, what, what, so the rest of 2021 leading up to the Olympics, is it Sierra Nevada? Is it Mont Rameau? Where, where are the rest of the camps leading in? What's the rest of the year look like up until at least the Games or, or even beyond that? Yeah, uh, we are now in Sierra Nevada, and we will be in Sierra Nevada uh, to the end of April. Uh, and then we have um, a little bit preparation at the sea level, and hopefully we will go to Japan and the first race in Yokohama. Mm -hmm. And then we have full is races every weekend, uh, not for everyone, but it will be quite a hectic racing season for all athletes who want to qualify for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you you know you have you have some athletes who are almost there we want to do everything they can to, to get the, the last races in so so some will, will of course do a lot of racing for the best athletes we, we will do the racing they feel they need to do and after the w test race in leeds we are going up to altitude in fondreme again and then we'll stay there until we are going to the pre-camp outside tokyo mm -hmm. then we have the olympics and um, yeah, and after that, it's normally a time to slow down, relax a little bit, but um, many of the races are postponed, so it will be a hectic August, and uh, yeah. yeah, and um, it's probably no secret that uh, some of the boys want to go all in to see if they can qualify for uh, Hawaii, or Pista uh, should be qualified to prepare for the Armen Hawaii. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so, of course, we need to work on that one. And uh, on top of that, we have uh, Mr. Blumenfeld who planned that he wanted to do the Sub-7 project. So uh, <laughs> so then he will work on that. And when he's finished with that, he needs to start preparation for the next Olympic cycle. So <laughs> <laughs> There's no rest, mate. There's no There's rest. No, no time for resting. <laughs> I have uh, one question that's kind of out of the blue here. Have you been approached by other federations to come and coach? I have some uh, some uh, requests, yes. Uh, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I have, yeah. but it is uh, first. Uh, I, I will not say that I am not sure that I can re replicate the same in other countries. I think I can, but I have a long history with with athletes. It's not about coaching them, and mm -hmm. it's about the team. Mm. Uh, you you know them. You are more with them than. You are with your kids almost, and they are something. I cannot see me coach. Maybe I can coach one or few other athletes as I do, but I don't think I can coach another team uh, when 
the athletes I have now is still racing. Uh, as as long as they want me as a coach, uh, I'll, and as and as long as I have the motivation, and as long as I'm improving and getting better and better, I, I, I want to work with the same team, rest of the you're, world. You're a good man. You're yeah. a very good man, and I love that answer. I have two final questions, and I'll let you go because I've taken so much yeah. of your time. I, but this show could keep going and going because I love it. Yeah, what you're it's, doing. it's really uh, good conversation we have. So uh, uh, I really enjoy it. Yeah. So okay, let's leave with a couple of with a tip. Um, what's what what sort of one tip that you can um, have for people listening to this episode on just how to sort of optimize their their life and, and their performances if they're if they're triathletes. <laughs> Uh, there's many answers on that. If I were talking to a normal bunch of people, I said, get out every day and do some exercise because you need it and you get a lot of good health from it, mental strengths of it. But most triathletes are probably don't have the trouble with doing enough training. <laughs> so, but, it, but it's something I've started thinking more, more about for myself is Try to appreciate what you have and be happy with what you have and uh, appreciate time with your family, your kids and uh, the small thing in the world that could be that I'm sometimes thinking I'm very driven by the performance of that. But in the end, yes, I like them to win the Olympics, to win gold, but in the end, it is your family, your kids, and the small thing in the world that you have every day that's important. And uh, for me, I would try to put my more energy into that because uh, uh, if you don't have have it as good as a person, you will not be, be in good in any role. You will not be a good coach, not a good dad, anything. Uh, mate, I couldn't have put that any better myself. I think... I think that's just a, a really great way to to put it. And, and finally, if you could sit with um, anybody in the world and have a coffee with them, any living person, who would it be and why? Well, uh, that is a little bit tricky question. Uh, <laughs> it, it could be uh, – I thought a little bit about it. Um, it's, I, I, don't want, I don't want to go into any politics discussion, but, but for me – the former president of U.S. Barack Obama was a, a really fascinating. He is a fascinating person. Uh, you see that he is um, genuine in what he do. Uh, he have a lot of energy. Um, he he is very like the. the I, I see him. He's a team worker. He's not. He's setting himself in front. And uh, the mutual respect he had for other people, even if they in the political side already disagree with each other, each other. Mm. I, 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 that the way he is as a person, uh, it would be really interesting to sit down with him and discuss leadership. Mm. How you're working with other people, how the, the genuine respect for all people, e- even you are mm. on the opposite side in politics or anything uh, for me he's a very fascinating person i really would like to know better but of course 
in the big world is a lot of people uh, that you want to sit down and get better know. And well, these, um, these days with COVID, I think we're all excited about having getting to sit yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. And, and it would be really great to to meet you face to face once time oh, and uh, and all 100%. of the yeah. Oh, mate, I can't wait to open up this show and start hitting the road and getting to Yeah, yeah, that you should do when you can out traveling. You should go out to, to a different environment and performance places oh. and meet people and uh, yeah, meet them and that do it, there. have a workout, do have a have a workout and then a beer and, and then just share some stories. It's that's my ultimate plan with this show, but um a real mate, thank you yeah. so much for your time and all all your your knowledge and and you've what you've done over this last just I mean not just this last ten years but your whole journey has just been fascinating to listen to. So I, I really really appreciate it. Where can you know if people are interested in in learning more about you or listening to your story, where where can they follow you? Uh, I have an Instagram account uh, and also have yeah. a Twitter and Facebook. I'm also active on all social media, but uh, on Instagram uh, Ariel T. My name, uh, I can give you the link afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can follow me. Uh, yeah. And then mostly about the training and what we do. It's not so much about me, me as a person because I don't think I'm so, so interested. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but anyway, uh, yeah. I think it, firstly, I think you're fascinating. Um, secondly, I'll put I'll put all of that in the show notes, mate, so people can find you there. And and if you're not following Aril, you can also be following his athletes, uh, Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden, and Casper Stoiners. They all have fascinating stories, and they often post with you in it. So um, you are all over the Instagram, whether you like it or not. But anyway, mate, I think this is a great place to wrap it up. Thank you everybody for listening, sharing, and um, you can find all the show notes and timestamps, uh, coupon codes, links, and everything at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks again, Ariel. This was amazing, mate. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Cheers, buddy. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.